Let's start this morning with a question, uh, as I like to do. So here's the question, what is your song? So let me frame this a couple of different ways. You may have had an experience in the coupling that you're currently in or in a relationship in the past where you've had our song. You know what that is, right? Or you may be a karaoke lover, right? You know, you've got your song when it comes to karaoke, uh, uh, or maybe it's the one that all your friends know you by. This is the song. So I want you to grab the people next to you, um, and I don't want you to just do it with your spouse or significant other if they are sitting next to you because you already know the answer to this together. But grab someone next to you and just, what is your song or our song, and why? What makes it your song? So a couple of minutes answer that question and then we'll kick back off. I love how animated this question has made everybody. If you want to break up your conversation, direct your attention back this way. Uh, you might want to pick that question back up when we get to the end of the service. I remember my first ever song moment. It was with a girl called Shona, who was my high school girlfriend. And, uh, you know, it dates you as soon as you start saying the, these things and it pigeonholes you. Our song was a song called To Become One by the Spice Girls. <laughs> oh, takes me back every time it would come on. I think about it. I remember when we broke up because she dumped me, sitting in my room playing the song with my heart like poured out. 
tears streaming down my face. Two were supposed to be one. How is this going to happen? Um, with Monica, it's a little bit different. We, um, we watched the movie August Rush. Has anyone in the room seen that movie? Beautiful movie with an amazing soundtrack. And there's this part that the whole movie is, is about this kid who's a musical genius. And he sees music in the world. So when he sees things happening, the wind blowing through the trees, he hears music. And so through the, the movie, he's learning his musical ability. He's learning how to put it down on paper. And by the end of the movie, he writes this uh, symphony that a whole orchestra is playing that has all the themes from the movie all brought together. Um, and there's this moment where there are these, these two characters, boyfriend and girlfriend essentially, uh, and the orchestra's playing and the crowd is there and there's two aisles and, and the woman is walking down the aisle to the music and the, the guy is like walking on the other side trying to get her attention and they walk down to the front and then they, their eyes are glued on this kid that's, that's leading this rhapsody at the front and I remember watching it like really moved by the music and I remember thinking wow this would be like amazing to walk down the aisle to like that moment in, in the scenes of Mon and I planned to use that piece of music for our wedding and now every time I watch that movie or, or hear that song I can't help but imagine Monica walking toward me down the aisle you know we have those moments we have our songs, music does something. Uh, it does something in us, it taps into something inside of us, and it does something relationally. That we can say, you know, this piece of music marks our relationship, or this piece of music marks who I am, or I can use a piece of music to identify myself to you and distinguish who I am and, and aspects of, of how I function and what I value. Music is powerful. We're in this series where we're reflecting on worship, and in particular, we're reflecting on how we express worship on a Sunday morning. Uh, music moves us, and I think it's interesting when you think about churches, music can be something that unites us as a church, uh, but it one of the most divisive things that exists in the history of the church. You have seasons in the history of the church with music where it's like uh, it, real good music in the church was people singing in unison with no instruments accompanying them. And then you have people writing choral works where people have multiple parts and they're fighting. True worship is united. Everyone's singing the same thing. And someone's like, no, music allows everybody to express their voices and the harmonies glorify God. You have seasons in the church where the music was led by a cantor at the front who would sing the songs or monks or uh, nuns in, in, at the front of the church who would sing. And as a congregation member, you would just listen and in your heart sing along and then you had seasons in the life of the church where it was like no we need to empower the church it's congregational singing and they're fighting no it, it's holy it should be the holy people that sing from the front no it's everybody we should sing all together and then you move further on and it's like organ playing with hymns as the way to lead music in the church no it's a band with drums on the stage you can't have drums that's of the devil <laughs> And, and then even today, there's variations of this happen in churches and, and in our hearts as we engage with music. Music can unite us. Music can divide us. It's amazing. Like songs like John, uh, I just, John Lennon, Imagine. 
<laughs> I was, I was going to say John Legend, and I was like, no, he, he's a different guy. <laughs> um, the, the song Imagine, that multiple people can hear that song and be whisked away somewhere. You can go to a concert, and someone can sing on the stage, and the room together is swept somewhere. Um, or music can be something that divides. Uh, it can divide a parent from their child. What are you doing listening to this atrocious music? Why would you listen to Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber? Uh, why would you listen to these people? Why would you subject your minds to that as your kids are listening to your music going, what on earth is this nonsense that you listen to? Music unites and music divides. That's such an interesting thing. What I want to do this morning is look at some elements of worship music or some elements of the worship experience and, and ask a, a bit of a question. Week one, I asked the question, what makes a worship song good? And you had some animated discussion about that. So I want to look at essentially what might make a worship song good. But along with this are, these are elements that make worship good and right and healthy and things that are going on in the background. But they are also elements that we can get hyper-focused on that can ruin our worship experience and can become idols in their own right. So this is a little bit of uh, what makes good worship and what can pull our hearts away as we worship God together. So let's go to number one, uh, really simple. Element number one, a pleasing melody. I want you to think for a moment when you're in a room listening to uh, some music and the string ensemble is out of tune. Anyone heard that? We had one of those in my high school. It's like, and you've got to smile and pretend they did really great. Um, a pleasing melody is one of the things that captures our heart. Um, what each person in the room defines as a pleasing melody is different based on the genre of music that you prefer. If you're Bill Vaughn, and you like your classical music and you write it, he's going to write these sweeping melodies and have the whole orchestra in mind as he's building it. If you're in here and you're bluegrass, you just want that banjo going, a little bit of twang in the voice. If you're a jazz player, you want flourishes and improvisation. Um, maybe you just like the simple nursery rhymes and you just want to sing a simple song that the kids can grab hold of. But we know a pleasing melody when we hear it. And we know the ones that you hear and you're just like, I just don't like that song. It just doesn't work for me. A pleasing melody is, is an important part of the worship experience. Let me read a, a couple of scriptures just in, in the background of this. Psalm 92, beautiful description of the worship event. The writer says, it's good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning, your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre, imagine those ten strings are all etching, the melody of the harp, imagine those hundred strings are all etching, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord, I sing for joy at what your hands have done. The beauty of melody and music in the worship of God. There's a unique chapter in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 25, where it explains something of what David is doing as he's establishing the worship of God in the temple. And here's where it says, David, together with the commanders of the army, like, notice this, this is the military doing its job here. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some from the sons of Asaph. My, the next one's my favorite character in the Bible, He-Man. <laughs> And Jejuthun for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals, 
here's the list of the men who performed the service. And, and the next part of the scriptures uh, gives this list of the people. All these men were under supervision, the supervision of their father for the music of the temple of the Lord with cymbals and lyres and harps for the ministry of the house of the Lord. These three men were under supervision of the king along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord. They numbered 288 people. So David, at this point, establishing worship, gathers a team of 288 well-established musicians who are trained and skillful in making music and brings them together for the worship of the Lord and sets this pattern of what worship is going to look like. Writing these pleasing melodies, skilled musicians coming together to fuel worship because God has created music to stimulate something in us. God has designed the hurts that each, each tone is at to come together in a way that complements or, or creates dissonance in a way that does something inside of us and moves us. Um, I don't know how much you look at the science of all of this stuff, but there's things that they do where they play music over people and the reverberations of the tones in your body can, can stimulate things in you that are healing and pleasing or, dis, uh, or uncomfortable. Pleasing melody is a core of the songs that you love. I, I don't think there's anyone in the room that is going to say, let me tell you one of my favorite worship songs, the melody's atrocious. <laughs> right? The ones that we love are the ones where the melody has captured us. And often the songs that corporately we like to sing together are the ones where the bulk of the people in the room are moved by the melody together and it moves us forward. You see the danger in this one though, right? I love this song, I think it's awful. Therefore, I'm gonna worship with my whole heart and I'm gonna stand here and not participate because this doesn't move me. You see the trouble when one person wants a contemporary thing that, that has riffs all over the place and goes really high and really low and someone wants just a, a good, solid, historical chorus that I've sung over and over again that has formed inside of me. Melody can become a problem. I know in my own experience, when I go into a worship setting and the music is out of tune, it disorients me in my worship. Um, and, that, and I have to fight through that in order to experience God. So number one, a pleasing melody. God gives us skillful musicians to lead us in that experience of worship. Number two, edifying lyrics. Again, I don't think there's many people in the room that are going to say, here's my song. Here's my song. Here's our song as a couple. The lyrics are awful. Right? They speak of how horrible people are, like they, they don't make any sense. Um, usually there's something in the lyrics that captures our heart. Ephesians 5 up here, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from the Lord. Sing and make music from, the Lord, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something in this command that as we are filled with the Spirit of God, it moves from inside of us, out of us, in lyrics, in psalms, in hymns, in songs from the Lord that shape the world around us as they pour out of us to build each other up. Um, good lyrics, when it comes to worship music, will reflect biblical truth. Um, I have the word biblical always in brackets because, because we argue over what biblical truth is, but true truth is always truth. If 
A song reflects the beauty of a flower. It's true and it can edify us. It's biblical because God created it, but you wouldn't be like, the beauty of the flower is a biblical truth. There are places you could go for that. But edifying lyrics usually reflect biblical truth. One of my favorite passages um, in the Bible is, is this section in the middle of Psalm 19. And just to remind us why biblical truth is important when it comes to the songs that we sing. This is Psalm 19 in the middle. And all of these words, laws, precepts, commands, I want you to think of this as the word of God. And I want you to look at the fruit that it has in our lives and why we might want the songs we sing to reflect the truth of scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. The word of God refreshes your soul, makes wise the simple, gives joy to your heart, gives light to your eyes. It warns you and it brings you great reward. Is there anyone in the room that doesn't want those fruits in your life? Right? This is why we want the word of God to permeate the worship that we sing because it's the only words that has the power to bring this kind of life into us. Edifying lyrics. There's a great book called Worship Matters by a, a worship leader, Bob Coughlin. Um, and when he's talking about the types of lyrics that we have in the worship songs that we sing today, he breaks them into three groups. And you might find yourself resonating with one of these words over the other. So the first group he calls objective songs that speak objective truths. So these are the ones that we are an objective bystander looking at God and describing the reality of who he is. God is great, he's powerful, he's mighty, he's awesome, uh, he's faithful, he's true. The objective ones are just stating the truth about who he is and how he functions in the world. He redeems, he saves, he provides, he's generous. And many of the old hymns that we like to sing express a lot of objective truth. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Uh, they're stating the goodness of who he is. Group number two, we can call them subjective songs. These are the ones that express more of how we feel subjectively about the God that we worship. God, my heart is for you. I delight in you. David might say, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It expresses something of who we are and the longing that we have for him. Or they say, God, I I'm scared. I, I fear the world around me. I fear where we're going. God, in the middle of my fear, would you meet me? And then it, the, the third group would be reflective songs. What do reflective songs do? They express the kind of actions that we have toward God. I sing your praise. I bow before you. I lift my hands in worship. Three different types of songs that express three different types of truth about our interaction with God. All of them are edifying because all of them are speaking a truth about who we are and all of them are describing something of the relationship between God and his created order. But what happens is some of us like one type of edifying truth over another. And that's all right, right? 
It's okay if you want to sit and just sing songs that declare the goodness of God. Um, And it's okay if you're someone that wants a song that's going to say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Oh, how I love you. My affection and my devotion poured out on your feet. Jesus, subjective and reflective songs coming together. Edifying lyrics are important. These are the things that when you have your song or our song that you're tapping into that you don't often even realize is happening. The song that that marks me and my high school girlfriend Shona was something that expressed what it meant for us to merge into two beings. I do think it's it's, uh, into one being. I think it's really interesting when you look at a song like that that expresses the love that you feel as a teenager that in some degree it reflects the biblical message that two become one. And scripture says, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder in talking of marriage. Something in that truth points to the reality of the message and speaks something about the longing that I had in relationship. There's the songs, that, the, the breakup songs that you listen to on repeat that express the pain in your heart, subjectively tapping into an emotion that you have a hard time expressing. There's the songs that you just bop to. They're, they're fun and they're energetic and you enjoy them um, as you're, you're doing your workout or are going on your walk. The, the, the lyrics matter to us. They tap into something inside of us. The gift of worship songs is they help us to express a, a truth that exists that we may not have the word for, uh, while the, the, the music taps into the emotional part of us and helps us to express some of the feelings that we don't always have to feel. It's beautiful to guard the worship that we do as a church, make sure the objective truths are right, make sure the subjective truths are, 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 are not too self-indulgent, make sure that we're, we're not prioritizing one of these over the other, but we again, it can be a danger for us as we decide, I like this kind of song and that kind of song is not okay. If it's got too much I, me, my, then it's not a God song. And so I have to go through Psalms and pull out half of what David writes because there's a lot of I, me, and my and what David says. So we need uh, the pleasing melody. There's an edifying lyrics. Um, next one I've got down here is stimulating energy. I think about verses like Psalm 149. Let him praise his name with dancing and make music with timbrel and a harp. There's something, and, and I hear this in conversations with people, and I have it my own experience of this, Sometimes you walk into a room and you're happy and worship is sad. And you're like, there's a disconnect. I want to jump up and down and praise the Lord. And yet this music is too slow and quiet. Sometimes it's the opposite, like I'm having a hard day. I just want to come in and kind of sit quietly and reflectively in the presence of God. And here we're, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I don't feel like praising the Lord today. He sucks today. And he's like, I can take that, I can take that. But there's something in music, the tempo. Uh, the rhythm, the keys, the key changes, the drum beat that stimulates energy. It's why when you go worship in Africa or, or when we were down in Honduras and you've got those jungle drums going, it does something in you that incites something. Um, as I was thinking about energy, I found myself coming back to Luke 7. Uh, you probably know this, this part of the story. Jesus is having a conversation with some people that are not getting things quite right. He goes on to say, what can I compare the people of this generation? Now, just remember, this is 2,000 years ago. What can I compa- to what can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song, but we didn't cry. 
Because we know there's something in music that stimulates the energy, the feel, the emotion. And it's so easy as a worship leader, it's so easy as people in the church to look and be like, we're playing something happy, you're not dancing. We're playing something sad, you're supposed to be crying, why are you not doing it? Implicit in this is the understanding that music brings an energy. It is too easy to allow the type of energy that we want from worship to stop us from worshiping or be the thing that we use to dictate what is good worship or what is not. Number four, enacting unity. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this one because I think Jim did a phenomenal job with this last week. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something in worship that brings us together. There is something, there is something prophetic happens. When I use the word prophetic, uh, I'm often talking about the, the physical things that we do have an impact on the spiritual reality round about us. There's something prophetic happens when the church comes together with one mind, one heart, one voice and expresses something, whether that's our worship songs to God, whether that's the actions that we take as we go out into the world, whether it's the affirmations that we make together, there's something powerful happens when we act in unity. When we come in and we sing together, what we could do is, is say, we're just gonna play some chords, everyone sing whatever you want. The, the musicians in the room are like, hallelujah, freedom. Uh, and other people are like, oh, I have no idea what to do right now. There's something unifying where we come around the same lyrics, around the same melody. When we bring our voices together in that process, it's a statement of unity. And what, I, I, again, I wanna give people freedom always. Like when we're singing, if you are in a moment where you're like, I just don't feel like singing these words right now, it's okay to disconnect and communicate with Jesus. Um, if everyone's standing with their arms in the air and you feel like God wants you on your knees, you're, you go to your knees. You do what you and Jesus need to do. But just be aware, when we're in a room like this and everyone is singing in unity, but you're the one person whose heart is somewhere else, I don't like this song, I don't like the music, you interrupt the prophetic uh, transaction that happens from the united body coming together to do what God is calling us to do. Um, I don't think we think about that enough, what happens when we disconnect to what is happening in the room. And I fully believe as God's people are gathering, I mean, all, all over the US right now, like right now, churches are gathering, they're singing, they're united under the word of God and ripples move out through the community around us. The fabric of the universe changes because we redeclare the truth of God. We redeclare our dependence on him. We reassert that we are united under him. Worship enacts unity. But it's easy to focus on that and forget that there's freedom in worship. Sometimes someone needs to do something different. Sometimes someone needs to read a scripture while someone's on their knees, while someone has their hands in the air, while someone's standing in silence. We can easily make the united act the idol that takes us away from what God is calling us to do. So the pleasing melody, the edifying lyrics, the stimulating energy and acting unity and then evoking nostalgia. This is one, I've been chewing on this for quite some time. How this impacts our worship and, and just our general spirituality. 
One of my favorite words in the Hebrew Bible is, is the word zakar, which means to remember, or the command zakray, like the command remember. And it's threaded from beginning to end of scripture. Remember that the Lord called you out of Egypt. Remember that you were slaves. Remember that God brought you through the Red Sea. Remember what Jesus did on the cross. Like these constant calls to remember who God is and what he's done. Remembering is key to our intimacy with God and it's key to the, to the way we engage in worship. I went on retreat this last weekend. Life was busy, hectic, lots of things had been going on. I was feeling tired and drained and depleted. And I get in my car and I drive to this cabin in Trout Lake where I've been many times. I've been with friends there. It's a friend's cabin. I've been with our family. I've been alone with my family. Our leadership team has been there. I've been with buddies on retreat. I wrote my dissertation in the upstairs room looking out at Mount Adams. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in that cabin. I drive up into the driveway and I take one look at that cabin and my soul just goes, ah. I can breathe. What is it about that cabin up at, we call it the cabin, it's a house on a street in Trout Lake, Washington. What is it about that moment that lets my heart breathe? It's nostalgia. It's remembering. It's that I've had experiences there. It's the same if I go to the grotto in northeast Portland and I go up on the elevator and I go to the meditation chapel that looks out over the north of Oregon and into Vancouver. Uh, and I sit there on the couch and my soul just goes, ah, because I've spent years of going up there and spending the day sitting on a comfortable couch, looking out, praying, journaling, reflecting on God. Something in the act of remembering Something in this nostalgic process stimulates worship. It's when you say this is our song, what is it that makes it our song? What makes it when the song comes on the radio that something mushy happens inside? Because of nostalgia. It brings back memories. You remember the beginning of your relationship. You remember seasons in your life when a song comes on the radio and you're like, this is, this is, uh, this is the song from high school. I remember our high school dance and we're all dancing to this song. It's nostalgia. It's why when we sing hymns or songs, I was at a worship, uh, I went to a church in Trout Lake when I was there and uh, they sang a song, well, they sang a lot of very old songs. They sang one song. I was like, man, I haven't heard this since I was like 17. And as they start singing, something to say me was just like, Phew. and I remembered being a new believer in this youth group and singing these songs with a bunch of friends around and something in me was unlocked and it was just delight as I sang. There's something in worship that's nostalgic that when you sing a worship song that you've sang over and over again, it's why hymns are so powerful. Amazing grace, they've been sung through history. And for some people in the room, you've sung that song so many times that you have camps and retreats and church services and countries that you've been in where that song played a role in your spirituality. And for some of the, the younger, newer Christians in the room, you've got songs that have meaning for you here. That when you hear them, you're like, I've sung this so many times, I know it. There's friendships attached to this song. There's a phrase all through scripture. I'm going to put two uh, things in tension here. There's a phrase that happens multiple times. Sing to the Lord a new song. In Psalms and Isaiah, there's this command. We've got to sing new songs. 
But then you've got these verses like Matthew 13, Jesus says to people, therefore every teacher of the law who's become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When I was thinking about this verse and thinking about our worship, let me think about the analogy first. There are wealthy people who have inherited treasure from the past. It's a finite amount of treasure. If they've invested it well, it may be continuing to produce some wealth. But that's there and it can be depleted. And it's one thing to say, hey, I've got wealth from the past. It's one thing to have wealth coming in now. It's another type of blessing to have wealth that you have in the storeroom and new wealth that's coming in now. And when I was thinking about worship, it's beautiful to have songs that are historic to our, our faith, that are historic to our church, that are historic to our lives, but also new songs uh, that, that are being written and created and, and flowing out of our heart. The beauty is when we have both of those things together. With old songs, they stimulate the nostalgia that already exists. With new songs, we have to allow them to continue to be sung and engaged in to build the memories that will bring the type of nostalgia that leads into worship. It is interesting when you sing a song that you know well, it's good to be swept up in nostalgic remembering, but have you ever realized that sometimes in your worship, you're worshiping nostalgia and not the God that you're supposed to be worshiping? And we feel it, you, you feel this rub when you're in a situation, and I'm here many times, I don't know any of these songs, I can't worship. <laughs> but Jesus tells me, sing a new song. Something is wrong if all, I, if all I can worship to is the stuff that has history. But something is wrong if every week all we're doing is new songs and no one can build any history with the songs that we sing. Part of worship is nostalgia, evokes nostalgia in us. So these different things that are part of, of worship, pleasing melodies, edifying lyrics, the, the biblical truth, the, stimulate, the stimulating energy, the unity that it brings, the nostalgia that it evokes, all of these are just parts of the tools of music. Uh, at the core of it all, what we really want is deepening relationship. Why did I ask the question at the beginning, like, what's our song? What does that represent? It represents a, a relational journey. It represents music that stirred something in us. It represents affection that we feel with people. It represents history that we've had together, words that connected with a season of our life that we carry forward with us. It's all about relationship. Worship is not about us just sitting in a room singing songs. It's not about what are my preferences, let's do those. They're songs designed to deepen intimacy with him. The melody helps stimulate our emotions and draw us into an awareness of his beauty. The edifying lyrics take the word of God and impart them deep into us or give us the words that we need to express to him how we feel and who he is or they give us instructions on the right way to posture ourselves before him. It brings unity as we come together. It evokes nostalgia in us. All of these things are good, but the purpose of it all is to deepen relationship with him and as Jim talked about last week, to remind us that we're supposed to come together in this process. Zephaniah 3.17, worship, worshipers love this verse. The Lord God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. and his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice 
over you with singing. The God that we're here to worship is the God who serenades us out of his affection for us. He sings objective truth over us. He sings subjective truths about his desire for us. He sings these reflective truths about the work that he will do on our behalf as we worship, even as we don't right now, as we sit in his presence, the lover of our soul is serenading us with a melody that speaks of his love and affection for us. Our job then is to join in that song and reflect back to him the love and the affection and the truth of who he is. So, elements of worship music that we encounter, pleasing melodies, edifying lyrics, the stimulating energy, the active unity, the evoking of nostalgia, all for the purpose of deepening relationships. So here's the question that I want you to uh, think about for a moment and then discuss as we come back in to singing. Which element is most dangerous for you? Which of those pieces is the one that is most likely to get in the way of your ability to worship? And, uh, and then if you have time, maybe even which one is the one that you feel pulls you into worship most readily. So um, let me pray and then give you a moment to discuss this and then we'll continue with some worship. God, I want to thank you for the gift of music and what it does in us. I don't know of anybody that, that doesn't hear beautiful music and feel moved inside um, God, I thank you for the gift of the creatives in the church, uh, past and present and future, who have written or will write songs that become corporate anthems expressing uh, who you are. God, I think about the, the songs that stand the test of time. They're usually the songs that have all of these elements together. Um, but God, part of the purpose of this series is to help us think about what goes on as we worship, to help us evaluate where our heart is as we come to worship you. So God, would you help us worship thoughtfully to see what melodies capture our hearts, to hear what words stimulate something inside of us, God, to, to realize the ways that we're swept back into the past or given a dream of the future. Um, God, we continue to plead with you, make us a worshiping people because the world will be changed when your church falls on their knees before you in worship and adoration and then stands on their feet and walks out into the world to carry that to the people around them. So God, make us worshipers, make us walking temples, make us walking houses of prayer where people can encounter you and be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So grab some people next to you. Maybe find someone you haven't talked to and answer that question. Which element is most dangerous for you?